My guest today is a professor and drag historian here at NYU. You may have read about regarding his class on the impact of RuPaul's Drag Race. You've seen his work at the Tate Modern, Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Arts and Design, and can watch his drag happy hour video work online. I'm happy to have with me today the wonderful Joe E. Jeffries. Hello. Hey, welcome, and thank you for the great introduction. No problem. So being that you are the drag historian, what was your first exposure to drag, and uh, was it love at first sight? Well, it was love at first sight, and it was a happy collapse. It was a happy, simultaneous event. It was also the first time I had ever walked into a gay bar. Okay. So this is back in the last century. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was growing up in North Carolina. Okay. Uh, One of the biggest near towns was a place called Durham, North Carolina. They had a gay bar called 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. Uh, One night I went there. I might well have been uh, underage, not allowed in the bar, but somehow I got in. Mm -hmm. And as I walked in, there was a drag show full glory going on on stage. I was like, wow, what's that? So not only was it the first experience, which is transformational for a lot of people, of walking into a gay space, gay bar, but it was also this thing in front of me that I had never imagined or conceived of. And ever since then, I've been transfixed in following this art form. From your perspective, how has the scene evolved since you first got into it? Well, it has, of course, changed. All things change. It has its ebbs and its valleys. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that we're necessarily in a golden age of drag at the moment, but I would say that we're in the Rue era of drag. When I was first seeing it, and for many, many years, drag was a very localized thing. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to see drag, you had to go out. Yeah. You had to go out to specific places at specific times, usually late hours to see this material you also had to kind of be comfortable in those environments to see it yeah right now you can just you know flip on your television or get on your computer and search around a little bit and you will be seeing drag so it has hit uh other platforms and those platforms have allowed it to have a reach Mm -hmm. that it never necessarily had before you comment that you don't necessarily think that it's a golden age of drag then for you what constitutes a golden age of drag? Well, a golden age would then be that all the folks who are watching RuPaul's Drag Race would be beating down the doors at their local gay bars Mm -hmm. to see any type of drag performance by anybody, not just somebody who has specifically been on that individual reality television show. What has changed a little bit is that because of RuPaul's Drag Race, there is a slight demand for people who have not necessarily been on that. They're not one of the 150, 175 blessed performers who have been there that gotten that golden ticket, right? Mm -hmm. And this has manifested itself in the drag brunch. Yeah. We used to not have drag brunches everywhere, right? And those are catering to an audience that... Well, they don't want to go out at one in the morning and they might not necessarily feel comfortable in a gay bar, but they still want to see drag performance live now. They need to get beyond the television and they're happy and they're intrigued by the form. Mm -hmm. And so the drag brunch has emerged to uh, fill that consumer need. So that is kind of a golden age thing. But like I said, the local drag performer in the bar at two in the morning hasn't quite benefited in the same way from this yet that I think a full out golden age would have. 
So then for you, is a golden age something that has yet to have happened and it's something to come? Or has there been a golden age in the past? I think we've kind of had a golden age in the past, perhaps during the vaudeville period. Now, I wasn't alive. Yeah. I'm old, but I'm not that old mm-hmm. uh, during that period. But this was a place where, you know, you came to see a juggler and a singer and a dog act. You never knew what you were going to see on in the, you know, it's kind of like America's Got Talent, but without the judges sitting there saying, you get a five, you know. And mixed into that were drag performers. And some of the drag performers, like Julian Eltinch or Carol Norman, were the top paid people in the in the industry at that point in time and people did you know want to come and see them or they wouldn't have been so highly paid so perhaps that was a golden era in a way but i can't you know fully discount these drag brunches i'm just looking for it to manifest now in other ways outside of the 150 to 175 lucky golden ticket contestant what is it about the drag that made you want to chronicle its history i consider drag to be the indigenous queer performance form meaning that it's of the people, by the people, and for the people. As a gay person myself, this is the art form of my people. I, that's, and so that's why I got into it. Also, it's generally in the past, it's been considered a rather bastardized form. It's a low form. It's like burlesque or mm-hmm. sideshows or something. It's it's not opera or ballet, right? So you know, it's like, no, this this deserves to be paid attention to. These people are working hard. They have technical skills. They have artistic skills. You need to look at this. Mm-hmm. You don't need just to push this aside because these people are performing in some dimly lit bar at three in the morning. No, this, they're, they have some serious work and thought in these routines that we need to look at. And so that's what then got me into it is kind of that, both of those sides. For those at home unaware, who was Ethel Eichelberger. Ethel Eichelberger was a performer here in the East Village in the 80s. Ethel grew up in Illinois. Ethel had a classical theater background training. Ethel was a repertory theater actor at the Trinity Repertory Company for many years and then said, screw this. I'm tired of what Ethel called this mock Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. I got to do something else. Ethel been exposed to Charles Lotham's ridiculous theatrical company at that point in time. Said, I'm giving up this Trinity thing. I'm moving to New York and I'm going to become a part of that Charles Lotham ridiculous theatrical thing. And Charles's troupe right there on one Sheridan Square, not far from the NYU campus, was exploring gender and performance, uh, doing shows like Camille and La Bourgeois Avant-Garde, uh, shows that were playing with politics and gender and whatnot. So Ethel became a member of that, and then also he got tired of that and said, screw that, I want to do my own shows. Mm-hmm. And so started writing his own pieces, and Ethel did the great women of history, literature, and myth. Clytemnestra, Jocasta, Carlotta, Empress of Mexico, hmm. uh, wrote in, uh, original characters like Minnie the Maid, right? I mean, as a gay man, he said, I want people to see me through these characters. He played places like the Pyramid Club and King Tut's Wawa Hut, Performance Space 122, eventually has a career on Broadway and then back again in the regional theater circuit, right? Mm-hmm. Wrote 30-some of these plays, uh, accompanied them on the accordion, wrote songs. Hmm. Uh, so they're kind of these rock and roll adventures, most of them written in some kind of rhymed verse, right? Uh, a very impactful performer. If you were lucky enough to have seen Ethel perform, you would never forget this presence on stage. What is it about Ethel's life that both made you want him to be both the subject of your PhD and I believe I read that you're doing a biography? Ethel was the subject of my PhD here in performance studies at NYU. And yes, uh, 
I mean, these works were astounding. These, these works are looking at the classical representations of women on stage, but through this gay male perspective. And these female characters, like Jocasta, gets absolutely little stage time, mm-hmm. you know, in the original Oedipus. So Ethel was saying, well, what is going on with this character? Let's see if I can just write a piece of from this character's viewpoint of this moment, this story, right? And these pieces, again, since they were kind of playing in bars and performance spaces, they were a little tossed aside. So I said, yeah, I need to get in there and do something with this, document this incredible career. From your research about Ethel, do you have a favorite story? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, Ethel always said there were no mistakes in his theater, right? So no matter what you did on stage, it was perfectly acceptable and fine. Uh, Ethel also improvised a lot on stage. I mean, the plays were fully written, Mm -hmm. fully written and scripted out. But Ethel would take the liberty of just going off the script, right? And this was fine when he was doing a solo piece up there by himself, but when it was a group cast situation, the other people would just be on stage horrified, just standing there kind of waiting for their next line, their next cue, so that, you know, they know to, like, come in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I witnessed some of those moments. I mean, I remember uh, being down in PS122 when they had no air conditioning on the corner of First Avenue and Ninth Street, hot New York City summers. Ethel tended to play there in August, right? Because, mm-hmm. well, they knew that Ethel could draw a crowd into a hot room, right? Mm-hmm. He was popular. Um, and just watching his makeup, like, run down his face, all the other cast makeup just sweat off their face, kind of like a pizza oven in this place, right? To shift gears to talking about your class about Drag Race, when did you first have this idea about a class about Drag Race and kind of what prompted it? Well, I knew that it was a culture phenomenon. Uh-huh. I thought I knew that it was worthy of study. And so I said, you know, I just kind of threw out some ideas for some classes that I might like to teach, kind of the standard, well, there's Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams and Samuel Beckett and the Theater of the Absurd. No, RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) They bought the RuPaul's Drag Race. They said, oh, yeah, that one. I was like, okay, I didn't think you were going to accept that. And how fast do I have to get this together, right? How fast? Like, oh, next semester. It's like, okay, let me get to work now immediately, (laughs) right? So I did. And of course, there's a wealth of material out there. And it might surprise people that there is actually a substantial body of what people would consider, you know, serious academic writing that has been done on RuPaul's Drag Race. There have already been at least two critical essay anthologies published on RuPaul's Drag Race. And there are at least two more coming down the line. And there's also a standalone book fully on the subject by a single author, right? So there's still material coming down the line on this topic. And then there are other essays scattered in other anthologies and journals and things of this nature. But, you know, just as books, you can already, like, find two things. Like I said, there are at least three more coming through the pipeline. You know, I knew that there was enough material in whatever, you know, what's on the web. I mean, and you can't ignore, you know, the phenomenon of Reddit and what goes (laughs) on there. It's like you have to look at this, the fan reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, because RuPaul's Drag Race honestly doesn't get as many what they call first screen viewings as it gets second screen viewings, mm-hmm. which then are the digital platforms. So the first screen viewing is nice, but it's that second screen viewing that really has the impact of the show. So much to the point that it really, you know, I, I understand it now, but I didn't quite get it at first because I'm teaching undergraduates, you know, like most of the students here at NYU, kind of 18 to 23, 21, somewhere yeah. in there, right? 
And so that means that, you know, RuPaul's now been on the air 11. We're coming up on 12 years. Mm -hmm. That most of these students were like six or eight years old yeah. when it first began broadcast, right? And so I always ask the first class just to get a feel of the room and what's going on. You know, how many seasons have you watched? Would you say, you know, pretty much in their entirety or whatever? Uh -huh. And a majority of the students, like, yeah, I've seen everything from season one up to now because they've gone back through these digital platforms and... Mm -hmm. watch these seasons right which is fascinating to me that there is but we're in kind of that age of uh binge viewing yeah right so they get into the binge viewing of the show through these platforms but still it's remarkable and it is something then that you know the students have in common and they remember things about the shows that i've forgotten because i've been watching them you know as they were broadcast since day one season one huh and so I forget because they've seen it more recently than I have, honestly. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, they're constantly able to pull in uh, pieces of fact or uh, stories about a, a particular episode that's like, oh, yeah, I forgot that. And like I said, there's the Reddit and the Twitter and the yeah. Facebook feeds about this and how the fans are reacting. Mm -hmm. So we look at things like in the class, we look at issues of body type, body image. Yeah. We look at what we call linguicism, how language is is held not only like gay language but how people from other cultures may have language issues in the show and how they proceed and progress yeah. along in the show issues of style which styles are coveted or which styles are praised in the show and which styles may not be mm -hmm. praised in the show yeah right so we look at kind of a range of issues that the show presents but not necessarily dissects right we, we start dissecting in a different way from the reddit yeah uh what is going on in the uh in this universe that rupaul has created now have you noticed that there's kind of a correlation between what's going on and getting popular in the scene and then what comes up in drag race or what's popular in drag race and then does that reflect like what comes out of the scene no I drag race has kind of homogenized the scene in a way and made a uh, kind of a standard look perhaps, but mm -hmm. it does not dictate what goes on out there in some bar at two in the morning. Yeah. Uh, there are still way out there wild and kooky performers who could never get on drag race and don't want to. Mm -hmm. They are non aspirational RuPaul's drag race performers. And those are the ones that I frequently like gravitate towards. Yeah, they're cutting their own path and doing their own thing. And yeah, they'd love to be able to tour internationally, but that's not the path they're going to find the way to do it in. And they kind of recognize that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so impressive about like the Sherry Vines of the world. And mm. they've been able to tour all over the world without like a drag race presence. Yes. I mean, there used to be like, you know, a handful of performers who could do that. Now, like I said, there are, you know, there aren't. 175 who can do that but yeah. there's a good number of the ones who were popular on the show you do not have to win rupaul's drag race to win rupaul's drag race. oh certainly not right yeah yeah i mean you can be you know have been on the show three times but if the audience loved you man they'll pay to keep coming to see you right yeah but it used to be like yeah uh jackie b and sherry mm -hmm. vine and joey arias yeah. and lady bunny and coco peru mm -hmm. and maybe a few others and this is kind of who toured a small circuit mm -hmm. and these were you know even though they were touring nationally and even internationally they were generally playing smaller 
venues. They yeah. were not doing what Bianca Del Rio is now doing. Yeah. Playing like what? The the Wembley facility, I think I read 12,500 yeah. seats. Yeah, Wembley Stadium and recently with like Carnegie. And I saw the Carnegie Hall performance Same. and I don't know what the capacity, like at least 3,000 people in that room perhaps. Yeah. You know, it's astounding. And, you know, and Bianca is not up there with uh, any guest performers. This is a solo act mm-hmm. or a good I mean, it is a 90-minute performance set. Bianca up there talking and talking trash and doing the things that Bianca does, you know? Yeah. And that's one thing I appreciate about Bianca and her when she was doing her tour internationally. She brought Sherry as an opener. Mm. So it's cool that Sherry Vine got to have, like, a Bianca Del Rio-esque crowd. So you're doing some work on the latest home release of the movie The Queen. How did you come to work on that project? Gosh, I don't even know when I became aware of The Queen. I think it was in high school. There's a John Waters movie. It might be Pink Flamingos. There's a scene in which Divine is licking the banister of a stairway, Mm -hmm. a stair rail. And behind Divine in the stairwell, there's a poster for The Queen. Okay. A movie poster, right? And I saw that and I said, oh, well, what's that movie poster back there? I want to see that movie. So I tracked down like a VHS copy of The Queen, right? And The Queen for a long time was kind of a semizdat in the gay community. Mm-hmm. It was a thing that was passed from hand to hand. It's like, oh, my God, girl, you got to see this. You won't believe this thing. You got to see this, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I saw it fell in love with it. Eventually, I met Flawless Sabrina mm-hmm. here in New York City. Flawless was on the New York City club scene as a host, a fixture in the rooms, right? Yeah. Talking, performing occasionally in the shows, right? So... Mm-hmm. I went up and started talking to Flawless about this thing because I recognized this immediately as a very important piece of the drag history story, this document, right? Yeah. This documentary. And, you know, I've just kind of associated myself with the film ever since. And I got a grant a couple of years ago from the Jerome Foundation to go and study the outtake material from mm-hmm. the Queen, as well as the paper trail that it left behind. It's like all the disputes they were having with producers and distributors. And it's like, oh, my God, we can't show this in our hometown here. This film was, you know, it was rated X when it was originally released in 1968. Huh. Right? So when it came time for them and they did, the, it's a glorious 4K restoration of the film. The film looks better now than it did originally in 1968. I promise you this digital restoration just makes that analog noise in the film disappear. It is yeah. sharp as it can be and just amazingly beautiful. Uh, now they're getting ready to do the DVD home packaging and they asked me to write the DVD booklet, which is what I'm in the process now of doing. So I'm digging through the old reviews and talks that I had with Flawless Sabrina to to see. And this film was both, you know, really well received by critics at the time in 1968 and also critics saying, you know, this is sick. This should never be shown. This shouldn't have been shot. What are we doing? Why is this screening? Why should people care about the Queen? Why should people care about the Queen? They should care about the Queen because it is A, an aesthetically beautiful film. Mm-hmm. B, it is documenting something that nobody at the time was documenting. I'm beginning to come around to the opinion, and I'm pretty getting pretty safe in saying this now, that The Queen is the first full-length documentary about drag. Hmm. So just right there. I mean, I, there's some other shorter films documenting drag, but nothing of this. I mean, The Queen is an hour, but it still counts as full-length. There's nothing of its length documenting the scene 
Uh, like I said, and it's it's gorgeous aesthetically. They're like, you know, out of focus shots of dangling rhinestone earrings and kind of this arty stuff in the film that I just love. It, it's a verite documentary. It is a direct cinema piece. Uh, Frank Simon was way ahead of his time. I mean, the Maisels brothers and Frederick Weissman are picking up from what was going on in The Queen. So it's an important uh film honestly in the history of documentary and it is documenting a subject that if you're at all interested in drag you need to see because a lot of it is the same mm. uh the film is showing the people out of drag getting into drag and finally the result just like rupaul's drag race is showing us you know kind of the outer drag interactions the getting into drag interactions and then finally the end product of this thing and then of course the queen does have the famous explosive endings which i don't want to spoil from you for you if you haven't seen it it's good also because it it's a beauty pageant and we understand beauty pageants we understand that you know you have this part of the competition that part of the competition and they crown a winner so yeah. it's got a structure that is very easy in this verite style to uh quickly grasp what's going on Mm -hmm. You touched upon how it was a film back then that was kind of passed on from person to person saying, you, mm -hmm. you must see this, you must see this. Do you feel like in a way Paris is burning has become that for kind of my generation? I think so, perhaps. Uh, and of course, you know, I guess things are now passed on in, in links and things yeah. of this nature. I mean, we don't like physically say, oh, here's the VHS. You got to see this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um but the ball scene is very different yeah. from the drag pageant scene. And actually, the ball scene, a lot of people will tell you, came out of the pageant scene. Mm -hmm. At the end of The Queen, not to spoil anything, but uh, Crystal LaBeja has an issue with the way that the contest was judged and who the winner is yeah. in the film. And so Crystal literally walks off stage mm -hmm. when the winners are being announced, right? Mm -hmm. That is honestly the moment that the House of Labeja is founded. Hmm. And the House of Labeja is considered the first house, as we understand house ball culture. Now, there were yeah. balls going on prior to that. Mm -hmm. But in the format and the style that we think about them in Paris is Burning, and the style has continued to uh, evolve and change. Mm -hmm. But the ball format is still basically the same. But that's when the ball culture began is right there that break so i kind of see those two films as nice little bookends to each other even though the ball scene is a very different thing in yeah. many ways to the pageant scene that's why crystal walked off that stage mm -hmm. right she wasn't being fairly judged in that environment she's like, i'm gonna create an environment on my own screw y'all bye yeah and she did and here we are you know you've been a part of a lot of great projects and you've done a lot of interesting work so that being said do you have something that you've done that you're most proud of? Oh, gosh. Um, I did a project for five years at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts called Drag Show Video Verite. Mm -hmm. And this was when I was just beginning to video capture the drag community in New York City. And I still continue to go out there on a fairly regular basis and video mm -hmm. the drag performance. I would take that footage that I shot during the course of the year. And I would dig around in people's closets, ask people, it's like, hey, do you have any old footage of yourself performing or something that, you know, and, I, and the, the rule was that it couldn't be like posted publicly. It had to be something that nobody had ever seen or mm -hmm. couldn't just like Google up and find, right? YouTube up and find. And I made these crazy mashups and super cuts 
of all this footage, my footage, other people's footage, kind of little shorts in the middle of the uh, piece. I did that for five years, and that's a project that I'm really proud of. I wish I had time to, like, make others, but, yeah, I can't believe that I actually, like, did that five years consecutively because it took, you know, it's a lot of time just shooting the footage and then editing the footage and finding the the tropes, if you'll excuse that word, uh, yeah. just cutting drag queens together, saying things like hello and thank you. I mean, it's kind of, and, you know, other words that drag queens frequently use. Yeah. It, it's kind of fun when you start, you know, trans historically. You know, I can show you a drag queen from, you know, 1942 doing this, and here's one from 2002 doing the exact same bit. Not song, but statement, you know, yeah. performance bit. Uh, drag queens twirling, you know, it's like, and, and the reveals, the, the ripping off of a piece of clothing to reveal something under that, just cutting all those types of things together. That's what I mean by a supercut or a, a mashup, uh, juxtaposing two things that don't necessarily supposedly go together, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the drag show video verite is one of the projects that I'm most proud of and has allowed for this archive of drag video that I now have. I mean, I've shot close to, it's well over a thousand hours, 1500 hours at least of drag performance in New York City and worldwide. When I travel, I also take that camera and see if I can get into a bar and they'll let me shoot, mm -hmm. right? I always ask, it's like, do you mind if I like shoot the performance? Yeah. And that's all that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in the transformation. Mm -hmm. Some photographers are interested in that, no. I'm interested in what you can put in front of me, yeah. right? I think that that's where you're saying what it is that you want to say and give it to me, mm -hmm. right? And that's the public part of your work. So, yeah, I'm not interested in kind of the backstage stuff. And walking backstage with a video camera is a real different thing from walking backstage with a still camera. Even though now you really can't quite tell the difference sometimes between a still camera and a video camera with these single lens reflex things, I still work with a clearly a video camera. To, to wrap up here, I'm going to ask a question that I've asked other mm. people before, but I particularly value your perspective because you are, in fact, a drag historian and an academic. Oh, God. So what would you say are the essential readings, watchings, listenings, etc., that everyone in, interested in drag should consume? They should consume the 1968 documentary the queen and mm -hmm. that's not just a plug for the new dvd that's about to come out of the 4k restoration it is essential viewing they should for a good history of drag there's a book out there by lawrence sinelac mm -hmm. called the changing room which is an astounding cross-cultural history of drag now it's a kind of a slow academic slog through in some ways but still it's it's an easy enough read and he covers a lot of bases Right. I would suggest listening wise, there was a performer out there by the name of Ray Bourbon in the 1940s who cut over a dozen LPs like vinyl records. He had these quick patter routines. They're fantastic hmm. and dirty. <laughs> right. I suggest hearing that to recognize that, yeah, a lot of this stuff ain't new. What's going on out there? It's been being done for a while, right? So if I could just point you in three places, film, a book, and some audio material, that's where I would shoot you. And for a live experience, go to Bushwick. Yeah. In September, go to Bushwick. Experience that. 23 straight hours of drag over uh, two days. Yeah. Well, drag and everything allied and related to it. You never know what's going to come up on that stage yeah. next, and that's what I love about it. You Same. Know?
where can the people find you, follow you, consume your media, and or take your class? Well, my classes are right here at NYU through the Tish Drama Department. Mm -hmm. This spring will be the RuPaul's Drag Race and its impact right here at NYU. I also teach over at the New School, so if you're at the New School, come find me over there. You can check out my Vimeo page. I have a page on Vimeo, vimeo.com, Joe Jeffries. And I'm also on Facebook, Joey Jeffries. So yeah, check me out. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you.